a warm welcome to one and all. The topic for today's podcast is orbital implants. An implant is a medical device manufactured to replace a biological structure, support a damaged biological structure, or enhance an ex- existing biological structure. I am Dr. Radhika Sriram, resident at Shankaranetra Le Chennai, and we have with us Dr. Varsha Bakyavati, oculoplasty surgeon at Shankaranetra Le Chennai. to discuss about the various orbital implants used in socket reconstruction welcome ma'am thank you dr radhika for the kind invitation let me start off with a case based discussion to make things interesting so a 35 year old male presents to you with an endophthalmic socket he has undergone an evisceration few years back following a road traffic accident On examination he has a grade 2 contracted socket with no implant in place. Can you give me an outline of your management? Sure ma'am. Here we are dealing with a secondary anophthalmic socket. While planning the management of socket reconstruction, one needs to look into whether there is an adequate volume and surface. In this case, I would like to plan a two-staged procedure. At first, I would address the volume deficit with a ball implant. Following this, I would perform a surface reconstruction at a later date. That's great, Doctor Radhika. Your concept is spot on. There is a famous saying: "Study the past if you want to define the future." Can you also give me a brief summary on the evolution of orbital implants? Way back in the nineteenth century, P. H. Mules was the first to introduce glass spherical implants. This breakthrough improved post-operative cosmesis by filling the orbital volume. Later, Fock suggested the use of hollow gold sphere to counteract the problem of erosion and migration caused by the glass sphere. In the next few decades, a variety of organic and inorganic materials were used as implants. These materials included celluloid, sponge, rubber, and many others. The next breakthrough was in 1941. when rudman introduced an orbital implant covered with tantalum mesh to which the extraocular muscles were attached this spearheaded the idea that orbital implants can provide not only volume restoration but also aid in motility of prosthesis therefore further development of orbital implants were focused on this aspect various implants such as allen iowa and universal implants were in vogue Currently the various alloplastic implants used worldwide are the non-integrated non-porous implants such as polymethyl mesh acrylate integrated porous implants such as medpore hydroxyapatite and others as you rightly mentioned orbital implants can be broadly classified into non-integrated quasi integrated and integrated implants can you discuss the pros and cons of each implant Ma'am, the non-integrated implants are the ones which are non-porous and have no direct muscle attachment. Due to these reasons, migration of the implant and decreased motility is inevitable. However, as these implants are inexpensive, easy to use with low rates of extrusion, many surgeons continue to use it worldwide even today. The integrated implants on the other hand allow fibrovascular ingrowth in the porous channels. and result in direct biological integration with orbital contents resulting in better motility and decreased migration rates however at times due to its rough surface exposure rates tend to be higher also surgical removal of these exposed implants can be tricky 
many a times as extensive dissection may be required in situations wherein fibrovascular ingrowth has already occurred. This results in soft tissue contracture leading to difficult secondary socket reconstruction. Semi-integrated implants allow attachment of muscle to tunnels on the anterior surface for better motility. These implants due to their irregular surface can lead to erosion and extrusion. It is for this reason that it has lost its popularity. Yes, you have mentioned the major advantages of each of them quite well. Among the two non-integrated implants, that is polymethylmethacrylate and silicon implants, which material would you prefer in this case and why? I would surely opt for a PMMA over silicone as silicone implants tend to form a pseudocapsule around it, leading to higher rates of implant infection and migration. PMMA has the advantage of being cost-effective with lower rates of extrusion. However, the disadvantage being decreased motility of ocular prosthesis and implant migration when compared to integrated implants does exist. Now in integrated implants, we have three options, namely hydroxyapatite, porous polyethylene and aluminium oxide. Would you please familiarize us with these? Firstly, hydroxyapatite is a porous biocompatible orbital implant with a chemical and porous structure similar to human bony tissue. There is fibrovascular ingrowth making it more fixed and resistant to migration. The extraocular muscles can also be attached to the implant. They may be natural or synthetic in nature. Though it sounds too good to be true, there are downsides to this implant as well. It is quite expensive with more tendency to expose and extrude due to its rough surface. Therefore, one prefers to wrap the implant with materials such as sclera, fasciolata, vicryl mesh and others to combat this problem. Secondly, the porous polyethylene, that is metpore, is again a biocompatible implant with a relatively smoother surface, is easier to implant and there is less rate of implant exposure. Several modifications to the metpore implant have been made, for example, the metpore quad implants with four mounds located anteriorly for better motility, the smooth surface tunnel implant, the conical shaped metpore implant and many others. Thirdly, the aluminium oxide is a bio-integrated bio-ceramic porous implant which is light weighted, smooth surfaced with lower exposure rate. A protein coat that forms after insertion makes it inert. This inert nature is potentially a critical advantage in minimizing the socket inflammation. Composite implants constituted by multiple materials are also available, example the alpha sphere, duret and others. Can you explain what you know about pegging Dr. Radhika? A peg connects the prosthesis to the implant. It permits direct coupling of the implant and offers movement to the prosthesis. This procedure is performed 6 to 12 months after the implantation and is usually made of titanium. It is inserted within the sleeves that are drilled into the anterior aspect of the porous implant. The disadvantage of this procedure are chronic discharge, implant infection, implant exposure and increased cost. It is clear that an appropriately sized implant is vital for a good outcome. 
A smaller implant can displace, migrate, and at times result in post-enucleation socket syndrome, characterized by deep upper eyelid sulcus, lower their laxity, and eyelid malposition. Conversely, larger implants can lead to wound gape and implant exposure. How would you go about choosing an appropriate perfect-sized implant? Ma'am, the choice of the size depends on whether an enucleation or an evisceration is performed. If an enucleation has been performed, the appropriate size of implant would be the axial length of the contralateral eye minus 3 mm. If an evisceration has been performed, the size would be the axial length of contralateral eye minus 2 mm. This is because the existing 1 mm of the patient's scleral coat is taken into account. A 20 mm sized orbital implant usually gives a volume of 4.2 ml. The normal orbital volume is an average of 7.2 ml. The deficit volume is filled by the ocular prosthesis. Ma'am, suppose a 3 year old child presents with an anophthalmic socket. What would be your choice of implant? Or in other words, does age play a role in your decision making? In the pediatric population, there may be a need for subsequent surgeries since the majority of the bone growth is achieved only by 5 years of age. At the age of 12 to 14 years, it attains the adult size. So the major stimulus for the orbital bone growth is the volume of the globe or implant within the socket. The first option would be a dermis fat graft. This being an autologous implant grows along with the child. Therefore, the child may not need any further surgical intervention for volume replacement in the future. Also, the dermis fat graft provides volume as well as surface replacement, which is a dual advantage. Having said that, if I have to choose a synthetic implant, I would opt for a non-integrated PMMA implant. The reason being, as the child grows, he or she would require a bigger sized implant in the future. The removal of the existing implant in exchange for a bigger implant becomes inevitable in most situations. Removal of a non-integrated implant without significant soft tissue damage is possible when compared to an integrated implant. Dermis fat graft does sound like the best bet, but is there a downside to this biogenic implant? Yes, there are complications pertinent only to this implant. The main complications being the unpredictable fat atrophy or even hypertrophy. Delayed conjunctival epithelization, graft failure, infection, and not to mention the donor site morbidity as well. Ma'am, what are your comments on expandable orbital implants? As the name suggests, these implants have the capacity to enlarge, example being hydrogel sphere or pellets. It is used for volume augmentation, especially in children, as it stimulates the orbital growth constantly. It can swell up to 12 times the full effect occurring at about 6 months. Dr. Radhika, can you discuss the possible complications of orbital implants and how one could avoid it? Some of the complications include infection, granuloma formation, cyst formation, implant exposure, extrusion, migration, and socket contracture or expansion. The successful outcome of volume replacement depends primarily on the case selection, meticulous surgery, 
and the right choice of implant. Last but not the least, can you describe the features of an ideal implant in short? Sure ma'am. An ideal implant should be non-degradable, biocompatible, non-allergic, non-toxic, easy to use, cost-effective with a good motility and minimal complication such as extrusion, exposure and others. I would say that we continue to strive to achieve these properties and the best is yet to come. Thank you so much Dr. Radhika. That was a good lively discussion and I hope everyone enjoyed it. Thank you so much ma'am. I thoroughly enjoyed the session and I hope the listeners also share the same sentiment. Kindly fill the feedback form and subscribe to us on various platforms. Do tune in next week as our optometrist team will be talking about top 10 mistakes to avoid in refraction.